0: Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Eric also. Um, Was that thanks be to to God a little bit softer this morning? I don't know. This is uh, an interesting passage. For our fall series, we are looking at the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, more than any other letter, I think, in the New Testament, gives us a theology of suffering so that... Peter says, the things that seem the most hopeless to us, the things that seem most hard and confusing to us can become the exact place where God is working to lead us into true joy, to make us holy, and to give us opportunity for witness to how great and glorious God is. So Peter, throughout this letter, gives us a pattern for the Christian life. What does it mean to live like a Christian? It means this. What feels like dying to us is God working resurrection life into our lives. What seems like the road of suffering is the path to glory. In our passage for this morning that we just heard, Peter applies this pattern to marriage. One of my favorite parts of officiating a wedding is the end, the presentation of the couple, where I get to say, when I'm officiating, now I present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., however they want me to say it. (laughs) And I thought this week, if I adapted... um, this presentation using Peter's pattern here, it might go like this. It would be something like, now I would look at the, the husband and the wife. Now, husband and wife, I present to you the road to suffering <laughs> and also the path to glory. What Peter gives us here is a revolutionary approach to marriage. Now, you may be thinking when I say that revolutionary What Peter says here seems so traditional, so outdated, so old-fashioned, and even so offensive to many of you. I realize this is how it seems at first to many of you listening. This is a passage that is full of all kind of landmines for us in our culture, especially today. Here we have advice about women's hairstyles and jewelry. And clothing, who am I I to say anything about that? We have a gentle and quiet spirit, which sounds very 1800s, Puritan style. We have a wife calling her husband Lord, which sounds very medieval, 1300s style. A wife is called a weaker partner and vessel. We will get to these things. At least in part, I hope to help you understand what Peter is saying when he says all of this. But first, let me say this. I did not write this. (laughs) Peter did. We know from Scripture that Peter was actually married. So he had to answer to his own wife for what he said here. But also, even more importantly, this is inspired by God. This is strange and difficult, but what I hope to show this morning is that Jesus calls all spouses who follow him to a revolutionary role in your marriage. When we live in these roles, what feels like suffering and loss is what, in fact, can bring resurrection life through us to our spouses and through our marriages to the world, which according to the Bible is what marriage is, in fact, all about. Before we begin, I have to say this first. So please hear this. This text and other passages, like this text that speak of submission, submission on the part of wives, have been used to condone domineering, controlling, demeaning treatment of women and wives, and even worse, to counsel women to remain in abusive relationships. So hear this, to use this text in that way is to twist it, to corrupt Scripture in the worst possible way. Nothing in this text can be seen or can be used to say that a woman is called to remain in an abusive relationship or marriage. In fact, everything this text says, says the exact opposite. An abusive relationship is a violation of everything God intended marriage to be. So... If that is where a woman finds herself, the Bible says, remove yourself. Go to safe people, find a safe place, and seek help. Please hear that. Also, if you are not married here, you are listening in to what the Bible says to married couples, maybe one day you will be married. And if not, you're called to be single. All marriages need support and help in living this out. First, to understand what Peter is saying to wives and husbands here, we have to do a bit of background work. First, we have to understand why did he feel the need to address wives and husbands at all in the first place? This teaching on marriage is part of a larger section that begins in chapter 2, verse 11. This is really the heart of the letter where Peter is teaching Christians how they should live within the social structures of their lives and of their time so he addresses politics we saw it 2 weeks ago he addresses the household beginning with household servants or slaves and now he comes to marriage he needed to directly address these things because because the gospel was so different so revolutionary to their culture and social structure for that matter, to any culture and any social structure, that there was great potential for Christians to misapply it, to not live it out properly, and even greater potential for those who were not Christians to completely misunderstand it, to see it as harmful, to see the Christian faith as actually bringing evil into society. So if we miss how revolutionary the message of the gospel was And is today. We will misread this. We will see this as Peter endorsing status quo traditional roles, when in fact, he is revolutionizing the roles in a marriage then and now. So, in the first part of the letter that we've been looking at over the past six or seven weeks, from the very beginning all the way to chapter 2, verse 9, what is Peter doing? He is reminding them of this message that they have come to believe, that by faith in Jesus Christ, they have this new identity, they have a new status, they have a whole new life, a new birth. This life, this status is more real and true than any status or position they have in this world. So, no matter what your gender, whether you're single or married, your race, your citizenship, your social status, whether legally you were a slave, for a free person, in the world and in society, Peter says, that doesn't matter. In the gospel, you are chosen royalty, with a status and a position and an inheritance that is equal to all. That is how it works in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is the only real kingdom, the only real order. Jesus, Peter says, is Lord. He is your authority. So for a Christian, it means no one controls you. No one can say they control you. No one rules you. No one owns you. You are bound to no one. You are free. The emperor doesn't rule you. Jesus does. The master doesn't own you. Jesus does. Even your spouse does not possess you. Jesus is your ultimate spouse. He concludes this section, his teaching on the social order in chapter 3, verse 22. It's not printed for you in your bulletin, but you can look at it if you have your Bible. There, Peter says, The resurrected Jesus Christ who's gone to heaven, he's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. So what does that mean? He's saying everyone and everything submits to Jesus, whether it's emperors, presidents, governors, heads of households, slaves, husbands, and wives. Okay, do you see how revolutionary of a claim this is? He's saying everyone is equal and everyone is subject. This is what attracted many people to Christianity. Because it was so revolutionary. Many who were oppressed and marginalized. That's why they became Christians. It's what drew them in. And it's why many in power resisted it and saw it as evil and slandered it. Because it dethroned them and elevated everyone as equals. That's one piece of the background we need to understand. There's the revolutionary message of the gospel and then there were the marriage roles. What did marriage look like at the time that Peter wrote this? Well, at this time, women in general were seen as largely inferior to men. Intellectually, emotionally, women were considered not reasonable. Morally, they were thought of as less virtuous. They had far less social power and status. By and large, could not own property and legally were considered second class. When it came to marriage, wives were expected to obey their husbands. That was it. They were, secondly, required to follow the religion of their husband. It wasn't an option. And thirdly, they were expected to be in social situations only with their husband or with their husband's approval. So for wives who became Christians, what did that mean? All three of those expectations had to be disobeyed. They were called to obey Jesus first and his word first. So husbands who were used to saying, you obey me first, their wives are listening to this guy Peter tell them and instruct them what to do. And they could have said, who is Peter? What authority does he have in your life? They were called to obey Jesus and his word. They were called to follow Jesus as Lord alone and turn away from all other gods and religions And to follow Jesus as Lord meant for them to be baptized into this new family, this new community that maybe their husbands were not a part of. Do you see how this could cause great tension at the time, especially for wives whose husbands were not Christians, which seems to be the primary situation Peter has in mind as you look at verse 1 in chapter 3. He says there, for wives whose husbands are disobedient to the Word. What should they do? Their faith caused these husbands embarrassment. It could have caused them loss of social standing. It could have caused them loss of economic opportunity. So there were all kinds of implications. What about husbands who became Christians? How did this message of revolutionary equality and freedom affect their role as a husband? So wives and husbands needed to hear this. Number one, the gospel brings a revolutionary change to the social order. Equality, equality even in marriage. But there is another part to the revolutionary message of the gospel. One of our favorite sayings in this country, maybe in your home, it's you can hear it in our home on occasion, and it is this. This is a free country which means I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. This is a free country. So there is truth to a Christian saying, I am a free Christian. No one can tell me what to do. But there's another part. First Peter 2.16. Peter says, you are free people. Part one. You are to use your freedom as a slave of God. Part two. Galatians 5.13 says something similar. You are called to be free. Part one. But don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Part two. Romans 13.8 says it this way. Don't owe anyone anything. Part one. except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's part two. For traditional cultures that emphasize order and roles, the gospel is a revolutionary message of equality and freedom. It challenges all inequalities and oppressive structures. But to modern cultures that emphasize freedom and equality, the gospel is a revolutionary message of service and submission. It challenges our demand for our rights, our personal freedoms, and our individualism. Both parts of the revolutionary message of the gospel are needed to understand and to live into what Peter says here. So that's all background information, but it's absolutely essential if we can understand these instructions that Peter gives to marriages. So let's look at some of the specifics here. These are radical instructions for spouses. Like I said before, say I'm calling them radical. You say, these don't seem radical. They seem anything but. It seems outdated and oppressive to wives. And what he says here to husbands, if you just look at it, it seems like eh, a little bit chauvinistic. But what I want to show you is at the time, and now as we apply these to our marriages, these are indeed radical instructions. And when followed, They bring the power of Christ into a marriage. Peter is not endorsing here any cultural roles in marriage, whether it be 1950s, you know, leave it to Beaver, Ward and June Cleaver kind of thing, or the first century. He is describing here how to live out the gospel in the role of husband and wife. In these roles, there's equality and freedom. See, wives here are addressed Even that alone, wives being addressed, was unheard of in the first century. Being told to freely choose to submit, not to accept passively being subjugated. Husbands, in verse 7, are told to honor their wives as a co-heir, unheard of. There is equality and freedom, and there is also difference and harmony. You see, these roles are not identical, but they're harmonious. Husbands and wives in the New Testament are given different roles and instructions. Note, this text is about marriage. It's not about relationships between men and women in general. So what does Peter say here? Let's look at the wives first. That's where he begins. I want to summarize his instructions under three headings. First, he says submit. If we could go to the next slide. He says, choose to defer your needs and desires to uphold the needs and the desires of your spouse. As much as this is uncomfortable for us, the word submission, the concept of submission, Peter does repeat it twice here, verse 1 and verse 5. It's the same word that's used throughout this section, which means to place yourself or arrange yourself under. Same instruction is given to wives in Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18. Every Christian is called to submit in some way. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, Jesus, the Son of God, submits to the Father. This doesn't diminish His equality with the Father. It is not a sign of His weakness for Him to submit, but for the Son of God, Jesus, it is a sign of His glory and of His strength. To submit, we said this, Uh, The the past few weeks. It's not to accept being squashed under someone out of force. That is not submission. So in a house, it's not being a doormat. It's not saying, I'll be the doormat, everyone walk all over me. That is not it. Submission is more like being a load-bearing wall in a house. I will choose to place myself under this home in order to lift and bear it up. If you think a load-bearing wall is weak, then just try knocking your load-bearing wall out from your house and see what happens. Peter says, choose to defer. He says then to wives, verses 3 through 5, cultivate an inner beauty. Cultivate an inner beauty that is radical then and now because there's so much pressure on women to live up to a certain external or outward appearance. Peter's saying don't live by those standards, the standards of the culture that often objectifies women. Your worth and your value is not in how you look, not in your hairstyles, jewelry, or clothing. He's not prohibiting those things, obviously, or else he would be prohibiting clothing altogether. Yes, these things can attract men, but there's something far more beautiful that attracts people to Jesus It's an inner beauty that you are called to cultivate. Now, he calls this inner beauty um, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. I don't know how you women feel about that. Sometimes you feel like, what is that saying? You say, just be quiet over there? That is not what he means. Notice, Peter is talking still about the inner life. Some translations say, this is the hidden person of the heart. It says not so much about how you talk or how loud you talk here. He's saying cultivate inner meekness and quietness. What is the opposite of inner meekness and quietness? It's an inner pride and noise going on inside. Peter's saying the hidden person that you need to cultivate inside of you is one who is at peace, who is secure in her worth and value in the gospel and in the care and the protection of your God. It's someone who doesn't have to always get your way. Someone who doesn't need to get your security from your husband. It's that kind of peace. Interestingly, 1 Corinthians 4.21, Galatians 6.1, Paul says, he uses the same phrase, a spirit of gentleness. He says you need a spirit of gentleness because it's required... When you need to correct someone, you can look those up later. When you need to speak to someone when they're in the wrong, when they're out of line and need to be told. He says if it's done from a quarrelsome spirit, inner person, an inner person out to control or manipulate or out of fear, it will do more harm than good. But if you're in a position where you do need to call somebody out, it needs to come from an inner place of gentleness. And calm. Verses 5 and 6. He says, this is how holy women put their hope in God. They adorned themselves. They were beautified in this way. And then he references Sarah from the book of Genesis. Now, why Sarah? Um, I won't be able to get into all of this, but it's kind of confusing to know exactly what he's talking about. It says, Sarah called her husband Lord. And I know what you might be thinking is <laughs> is Peter actually saying I'm to call am I at home to be called Lord Eric by my wife? I don't think so. I might like that, but that's not what he's that's not what he's talking about here. You know, in the only place that we can find in the book of Genesis where Sarah called her husband Lord, she didn't call him Lord to his face. Do you know who she said it to? She said it to the Lord. This is when God had visited them. They were talking about the future child that was to be born. And there, when when Sarah is talking about Abraham to God Himself, she calls him Lord. I think this has more to do with how a woman speaks about her husband to other people. It's with great respect. That's a part of the inner beauty. Thirdly, Peter says, cast off all fear. He says, don't do this out of fear. This is not about intimidation. This is not about what other people think of you or fitting a certain role that others want to put you in. And don't be afraid of your husband. That's not what this is about. So he says, choose to defer. Cultivate inner beauty. Cast off all fear. It's radical instructions. But here's what I want you to hear mainly About this, wives, what is the goal for all of this? The goal, Peter says here, is to win. It's to win. Sometimes in a marriage you can get into an argument and, you know, the whole reason for the argument just fades off into the background. No one even knows what you're arguing about anymore. You just want to win. Peter says... Wives' main role in the marriage is to win, to win their husbands over without a word by the way that they live. Not to win an argument, but to win over your husband to Jesus, over and over again to win. This directly applies to husbands who were not Christians, but I think it also applies to husbands who temporarily, inadvertently disobey the word as well. Which is for those of us who are husbands, all of us. I think this is the most radical thing of all because Peter is saying the wife is not in the crowd cheering on her husband, saying, Yay, go, do what you got to do. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm your number one fan. Yeah. Or the wife is not on the sidelines there. Oh, I'm here if you need me. Yeah, put me in if you need me. I'm over here. I can help. No. The wife is right there in the most important game in life, competing to win over her husband, to live in obedience to God. That is the kind of power and influence a wife is called to. Nothing is more important than a man living in obedience to the Word. Those of you who are unmarried guys here, young or old or whatever, young men, this is the kind of woman you need to look for, one who will compete, one who will contend to win like this. I want to show you a picture, does anybody know who this is, or where this is? Has anybody seen this? This is um, at the end of Wilshire Boulevard in Santa Monica. This is Santa Monica. This is who Santa Monica is named after. She is an example of a wife. Who won? She lived in North Africa in the fourth century. She was a Christian. Her husband was not, he was not a good man. Her son rejected the faith as well. But years later, having come to faith, her son wrote this about her She was given to a husband whom she served as her Lord. As she worked herself to win him to you, he's talking to God, preaching you to him by her behavior, by which you made her beautiful. And reverently amiable and admirable unto her husband. Finally, her own husband, now towards the end of his earthly existence, did she win over to you? Uh, Saint Monica is Saint Augustine's mother. She's an example of a wife who won. What about husbands? The instructions here for husbands you just get one verse, it's shorter. Note that husbands are not told to keep their wives in, as subjects or in submission. Husbands are not told to keep their wives in order. And in the New Testament, anywhere in the Bible, husbands are never even directly told to lead. All that is Jesus' role in the, wife, in the lives of our wives. What is the husband's role? Two things. Live to know your wife Lift up your wife. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. The phrase here is a little bit hard to translate fully. He says, uh, literally, live with your wives according to knowledge. Know them. Know your wife better than anyone else, anyone else in the whole world. Know her, not just things about her. Know her needs, know her desires, know her heart. Now, I know it says, as a weaker vessel, okay, um, a weaker partner, sometimes transla- translated vessel. Usually that refers to, to a physical material object or a physical body. Now, I'm not going to get into the ring with Ronda Rousey or any warrior UFC woman to prove this, that a man is always stronger than a woman. That's not what Peter is saying, but he's saying, on general, men have the physical advantage with greater strength than women. I like what scholar Sarah Sumner says about this. She says it could be best understood as a vulnerability. It doesn't say women are weak and men are not. It says weaker or more vulnerable. We are all vulnerable. But a woman has greater vulnerability physically and overall in her social position than and now. So he's saying to men, never use your power in any way to control or force or intimidate your wife. Lay aside your power, lift her up as if she is the most important and valuable person in your life, in the world. Lift her up. He says, Show her honor as a co heir of the grace of life. Lift up your wife as your equal, as she will be, he says, for eternity. That was radical. Now, what is the goal? For husbands here. Peter had had given the wives a goal to win. What is the goal for husbands? He says the husband's goal here is prayer. You see that? He says if you don't follow this, your prayers might be hindered. An unhindered intimate life of prayer is the goal. Wives' goal win, husbands' goal is prayer. Husbands, if I can speak to you, your reaction to this it really says everything. If you look at that and you hear that and you read that and go, oh, if I don't follow this, all that happens is I, you know, this is my punishment. I, my prayers get hindered. If you hear this like a kid's punishment, like, if you don't listen right now, you're going to have to eat your broccoli. Or you're mis- Sorry, I said that wrong. If you don't listen right now, you won't get your broccoli for dinner. A kid will be like, oh, okay, I'm not going to listen. Or... Would this be for you the worst thing you could possibly imagine? I think God is saying here, if you don't know your wife, if you don't lift her up and honor her, you don't really know me. You are just pretending to know me. And one scholar says here, and and I I agree with this, that what Peter has in mind here is, is prayer, not just as an individual husband on your own, but he's talking about prayer as a couple, That this is the most intimate space and gift of marriage. More than a great sex life, the most intimate place for a marriage is a great prayer life. This is the goal for a husband, to know his wife in prayer and to lift her up in prayer. That's radical. Practically, what does this look like? These roles are different. Wives called to win through submission. Husbands called to draw their their wives into a life of prayer through knowing and honoring them. Yet the practical description of how this really looks, it's not given here. It's not given anywhere in the Bible. Who does what? What does it really look like? What does it really mean? Well, I... I have been convinced by two women Karen Jobs and Kathy Keller who have written about this that it is God's wisdom not to give us these specifics. As marriage roles are different in different cultures, scripture doesn't prescribe who pays the bills, who makes more money, who manages the finances, who takes out the garbage, all that kind of stuff. That's not given in scripture. It's God's wisdom. Maybe we can think of this as two roads, two paths that husbands and wives are given. They're different, but they're leading to the same place, the same destination. This place of obedience to the gospel. This place of an intimate life, of connection with each other and with God. God says to wives, here's your road to walk into that. God says to husbands, here's your road to walk into that. And he leaves the specifics up to each husband and wife to work out. I think that's how we're to see this. Finally, we'll close with this. The resources needed to do this. What I hope to show you this morning is that Jesus calls all spouses who follow him to this revolutionary role in a marriage. And when we live in these roles, what feels like a suffering and a loss and a giving up is what in fact can bring great resurrection life through us to our spouses and through our marriages to the world, which is, in fact, what marriage is all about, according to the Bible. But instructions are not enough. You know, whenever you open up an instruction manual, say it's an instruction manual for a piece of furniture at Ikea, you know, there are two parts. There's all the instructions, right? They give you what to do and and how to do those things. But there's a the stuff at the very beginning which are the resources needed to do it. If you try to put together a piece of Ikea furniture without the little Allen wrench, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you need the Allen wrench. The Bible gives us some instructions on marriage. Some, like just a very little bit, not much. We wish there were more. But the Bible spends way more time telling us about the resources we need to do this. Clearly, these are not instructions for us as to how can I find marital bliss? How can I find my soulmate in an everlasting romantic bliss kind of thing? These are revolutionary roles and instructions because they tell us to give up our freedom, to give up power, to use our strength and our position to lift up and honor another. This is a call to a road of suffering, of giving up, of moving down, in order to walk the path of glory, of obedience and joyful intimacy with God. The resources we need for this is the gospel. If you've been with us any number of weeks, you might have known that I was already going to say that. But what does that mean? Just right before this text, in 1 Peter 2, Verses 24 and 25, right at the heart of Peter's instructions to how to live out this revolutionary message of the gospel in the roles that you're given in this world, he says you can't do it without the gospel of knowing that Jesus, he took the path of suffering in order to bring you in to this glory. Jesus became weak and vulnerable. He took insults. He was threatened. He suffered so he could be wounded for our healing. Jesus set aside his strength, his position. He came as a lamb to die, powerless, so he could bring back sheep who have gone astray. What Peter is saying is this. However low Jesus calls you to go as a husband and wife, He went far lower for you. Whatever Jesus asks of you in your role to serve, he has taken on and fulfilled this role of a servant to a far greater extent than you'll ever know for you to win you, to win you, to bring you into unhindered intimacy and connection with God. John Chrysostom, who wrote, in the third century, said this to husbands. It applies to wives as well. He says, even if it becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes, and even to endure and undergo suffering of any kind, do not refuse. Even though you undergo all this, you will never have done anything equal to what Christ has done. You are sacrificing yourself for someone to whom you are already joined, but he offered himself up for the one who turned her back on him and hated him. Though we have turned our back on him and hated him, he has come to us in love to give himself for us. He will never turn his back on us. When our hearts are won over to him, when we realize that we have been won over to him in order that we might experience unhindered closeness with the God who made us, when we experience the love of our perfect spouse, Jesus, then and only then will we have the resources to do this. His love is sufficient. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, this text challenges us, it seems very strange to us, it seems very hard for us. And I pray um, especially for those who are married, those who will one day be married, as we seek to live into this text, as we seek to understand what it might mean for us for the rest of today, for this week, for the rest of our married lives. I pray that you would make us humble to be able to hear it. But I pray, most of all, that you would open up our hearts to realize the kind of love that you have given to us. How faithful you have been when we have been unfaithful. How steady you have been when we are not steady. How you will never give up on us. Thank you for winning our hearts. This morning, I pray that you win them all over again. Give us the strength, the encouragement, and the trust in you to love in the way that you call us to love. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Close with a final song.